The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Happy New Year and welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm your host, Dave Hennessy. A little housekeeping to start. Excited to be going into our second year of the podcast. And we have some great guests lined up for 2018. Some from very large and global organizations. Also, starting February and into March, we'll be launching a series of diversity and inclusion-focused podcasts leading into NERA's DNI Gala on March 22nd, where Anita Hill will be the keynote speaker. Ms. Hill was recently named chair of Hollywood's Commission on Sexual Harassment. Unsurprisingly, NERA has almost sold out this event, so go quickly to NERA.com if you're interested in attending. Today's guest was NERA's 2016 John D. Erlen five-star award winner for HR Excellence. He leads the HR function for Kronos, Dave Almeida, Chief People Officer. Kronos was featured in the November-December issue of the Harvard Business Review regarding their unlimited vacation policy, which is now two years old. It's a real fascinating article, and I'll link to it on my post of this podcast. You can also just Google HBR and Kronos, and that article comes right up. Early in the podcast, Dave describes the reasons why they rolled out this unlimited vacation policy and some of the challenges and mostly the positive impact it's had for Kronos and their employees. It's very fitting a company named after the Greek god of time would be rolling out a benefit of more time to their employees. Many of you might be thinking of the savings Kronos might be enjoying because of vacation accruals, but Dave dispels that during this discussion as they added new benefits to the employees with all the accrual savings. Later in the podcast, Dave talks about what makes his HR team so special, and toward the end of our discussion, Dave describes how Kronos is improving management effectiveness across their organization. By the way, look forward to Christopher Darcy, the head of HR for Liaison International. He's up next. You'll hear his podcast in the middle of January. And now I bring you Dave Almeida. Well, welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy, and we are sitting here at the beautiful new headquarters of Kronos with the Chief People Officer, Dave Almeida. Welcome to the podcast, David. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, a little bit about Kronos. Uh, first, what drew you to the to this organization? Yeah, were... there's a lot of different things. I mean, I think, you know, at some point, um, I knew that I think the industry thing was going to be um, something that I wanted to experience in my career. Um, so, I love, still, I'm still in touch with the current CEO. It's Sure Goodman, who's at... Uh, Staples and many of the other folks there, so it's always going to hold a place in my heart that's huge. I mean, uh, but I, but you know, you have to kind of be honest with yourself, and it was time to kind of do something different for me there. And um, I looked at a couple different industries. It was uh, really tech and pharma predominantly, and mostly uh, two reasons: one, both very interesting, and two, the, from a New England perspective, <laughs> right. like you know, we have an advantage. Yeah, in and, and, those you know, two areas. My wife and I decided a long time ago we're never moving, so and we never have. So you got to figure out industries that. You could work in around here. Right. There's a lot of technology companies around here. And yeah. you said, okay, well, that's interesting, but what's, you know, what else are you looking for? And, you know, I was looking for a, um, mostly a, a company in an industry that was not only 
in one of the areas I just talked about, but also had potential for growth. Uh, and I thought that was true here. I thought it was true both from a um, technology standpoint. I was very familiar with the technology. I bought it mm-hmm. when I was with um, Staples. Uh, and so I knew it. I saw the value in it. And I thought we were just kind of scratching the surface relative to the value the technology could deliver. Um, we weren't here. Oh, yeah. As a, as a buyer, you... Um have a unique perspective. You're heading up HR yeah. here, but you can actually talk to, you're the user as well. So you yeah. can talk to the people that produce products That's and right. say, this is what we need. This is what HR leaders and practitioners need. Yeah, I'm the executive sponsor on a couple of the accounts here for that reason, you know, so I know it from both sides, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so that was interesting to me, you know, heading up HR for a company that is involved with, you know, workforce management, human capital management technology is a pretty unique thing to do. The first note I got, from uh, one of my professors, Peter Capelli, um, was, wow, that was, that's an interesting move you just made going mm-hmm. in there. Let's, let's talk about that. And, and I think he's right. I mean, it was, uh, for all the reasons you might expect, kind of, uh, even though it was a different industry, there was enough familiarity because it's, it's focused on, you Your know, function. what I'm, yeah. right. So you, it's a little bit of a bridge, I would say, between sure. the two, two industries. So that was a reason. Um, but I would say the most compelling reason I came here was the CEO. Um, and the most compelling reason I stay here as a CEO is right. Is he right? was employee like two or three. One of the original. Um, yeah. So Mark Ain, his brother, originally founded it, came out of MIT, looked at a couple, uh, I think like 10 or so different businesses that he thought he might start up after mm. he graduated from MIT. And for lots of reasons, you're better off asking him about. But he focused on um, kind of automating the time clock using what was then cutting-edge technology microprocessors to automate punches instead of the written time clock thing. And from there, you know, that's part of our business today, but it's not a you know, huge part of our business, obviously. But uh, from there, the thing just kind of took off. And Aaron uh, Ain uh, took over as the CEO in the mid-2000s, and, you know, a lot of the growth, um, especially in the software as a service area, has, has kind of taken off since More global then. as well. Right? And the global thing, which is yeah. uh, the other reason I thought that there was an opportunity here is we were we weren't really penetrated on a, as, on a global basis and look you know as a guy who used to run global uh, hr you know for staples in a, in a multi-unit kind of multinational company there's a huge need for one system not multiple as you're trying to pull everything together and have a have kind of one one view of what's going on in your business and mm-hmm. so i saw that as an opportunity as well and then the senior team here i also viewed as being very capable and you know probably more importantly i'm getting back to aaron for a second he wanted to change things here. He wanted to shake things up from a talent perspective. and So that and, attracted you as well? Yeah, he wanted yeah. somebody that was going to take a little bit of a different approach, here, mm. you know, and, um, you know, that's that's fun for, for us. I mean, there's always kind of, you know, flawless tactical execution you need to do. That's the ante for this job. Mm. But beyond that, you know, what you need to do for the business and how you decide you're going to go after that, um, there's a lot of latitude there. And especially here, there there. There was um, as much as where we just had our 40th uh, anniversary as a company. Congratulations. Yeah. But, you know, 40-year-old technology companies doesn't sound as sexy as a a startup. So how do you change the profile of the company from an external and internal perspective? And and there's a lot of um, opportunity there, I thought. Well, I think one example of that, and I'm glad you brought up your CEO because um, you and I, when Tracy and I, Tracy connected the two of us. That was about a month ago to set up this podcast, Tracy Burns over at NERA. This article hadn't come out. The Harvard Business Review just uh, came up with an article, I think it was earlier this week. And I was like so excited to read it. I'm like, I'm going to be interviewing David. <laughs> and it is very big stuff in HR. 
And I know it started off with your CEO. And first of all, um, interesting, the fitting name of Kronos, right? It's about you provide time software, time management, workforce software. And this article is all about a time issue, a vacation time issue. And your CEO talked about how as an executive in this article, I'm going to post this for all you listeners. You're going to get a link to this article. You should probably read it now before you even listen to the rest of this podcast. As an executive, he was never required to track time because he was working wherever he was. And then he noticed that his daughter and this, you know, we're all wireless and online all the time, would come home for Thanksgiving and she was working over the weekends and then they would try to plan a family vacation and she had run out of vacation time. And he was like frustrated by that. Like, I know she's working more, (laughs) I mean, working when she's not supposed to be working, so she should get more vacation time. And then he came to you and your team and said, let's try something new. And I'm going to let you pick up the story from here because it's a fascinating story. We'd love to hear it directly from you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, I, I, all that, everything you just said is absolutely true. Of course it was because it was in the Harvard Business Review. So, it was a great article. Yeah, it was. And it was in the, for those of you who are looking for the hard version, hard copy version, it's in the November, December uh, version of uh, the Harvard Business Review. And I actually haven't I've read the article, but I haven't uh, looked at the article in the HBR kind of hard uh, print copy yet. But um, I think it's a couple of things about it. One, it's really reflective of, of who we are as a company and who he is as a, as a CEO. I mean, nothing in there that you read isn't absolutely true, and that's how he shows up every single day. I think, you know, as a, as a senior team, and certainly between he and I, we came to the conclusion that the that the kind of work-life balance thing had flipped in a way that was kind of wholly unfair to employees. Like, you know, he gave his uh, um, his daughter, I believe he's talking about Danielle, who works very hard, uh, very bright, uh, as you'd imagine, since he's, she's his daughter. But we have examples of that here as well. And I think every company does where, you know, you're never disconnected. You, know, you might go on vacation, but there's a, in some cases, there's a implied expectation that at least you'll reply to the important stuff. Or um, even if there isn't, I feel like I don't know about you, but I get an email roughly every two minutes. So if I don't stay on top of it, like it's not a lot of fun to come back and try to sort through all those emails when you're back. So the demands on every employee today, especially the ones that are connected in the way we just discussed. Which is most of them here. Which is most of them. It's about everybody here. Right. Have increased to the point where really tough to manage work life. Right. So and I think in an unfair way. And, you know, consider that the accrual process for vacation hasn't kept pace with that. So you don't get any more vacation than you did before you were kind of hyper-connected, um, but, you, but you're hyper-connected. Is that really fair? I mean, who wins in that equation? Well, it's pretty obvious. Employers win and um, employees lose and I think, you know, become more stressed and, you know, try to, to do kind of unnatural things to make all that work. So we said, look, let's just take that away from people. You know, one of the things that we focused on here for a long time is creating a culture based on trust and transparency. And trust, especially, is a big part of this because we do trust people to be productive here. Um, if they weren't productive, we would tell them that's a transparency part. We'd have that candid, courageous conversation with folks so they know where they stand. And the vast majority of them are phenomenal performers. So if they come forward and say, look, I need you know time off to do whatever, um, we had a, I think this was mentioned in the in the article, but if it wasn't, it's out there on the in the Kronos News. We had a we had a woman this year whose two daughters were selected to be in the touring company of Annie. Yeah, it's it's in the article. It in yeah. the article? Yeah, and so she came forward. And she had been a proven performer, had worked remotely a little bit in the past, and we knew she was great. So, 
you know, we just had to figure out some logistical stuff. But not only did she pull that off, went through the whole summer in this with both daughters and the uh, connectivity issues on buses sometimes in the <laughs> middle of like Montana or whatever. But, you know, she even knew when that was going to happen. And she went into her calendar and said, I'm going to be disconnected at these times, connected at this time. So she took this very seriously. She got promoted, actually, during the time that she was away doing these things. So, you know, that's a pretty extreme example. But the more normal examples are you want to go to a family reunion. You have a doctor's appointment, whatever. People are constantly checking their accruals and saying, can I do that? You know, do I have enough time of my own right. to do that? This, this takes that burden completely away. And I think that's more in keeping with not only our culture, but really modern ways of working. Mm. But it, we also, and I think this was mentioned in the article as well, we took those funds from uh, the accruals that, we, that are normally paid out because over time you don't have to do that. Um, and we invested. Oh, because right now, if they leave the organization the old way, you would get whatever vacation time you yeah. haven't used. That's now, right. So we basically, the you way I think about that is we're investing in the people that are staying versus the people that are leaving. So the over a million dollars we pay out every year, we've put into new benefits. We spend actually more than we saved. But, you know, think about things like fully paid STD, paternity leave, fully paid maternity leave, put in a scholarship program, put in a school loan, student loan repayment program, I mean, and many other things. Um, and so we spent those funds that we were essentially just given to people who chose to work elsewhere on people that were still here. Right. So, you know, in combination, the my time piece, the, you know, kind of vacation piece was powerful, but it also enabled a whole other set of things to happen that wouldn't have been possible really from a from an expense standpoint if we hadn't made that first move. And that's where that's where it gets fun for us, you know. I would imagine this you is know? gonna be from an HR perspective, <laughs> yeah. have you ever had a project that you've so much more to look forward to than doing something like this. Um, now you have to compare, but I just no, think it's, it's going to be, yeah. No, this is definitely up there on the list, you yeah. know, and I, what I love about it is, you know, I, I'm not aware of anybody that's done this. Not that we think yeah. it's great. It goes back to what I said early on, which we had a business problem and we came up with a solution. Right. I don't look at it as an extraordinary thing that we did. I think it's fairly kind of um, logical the way we went after this thing, but the impact has been pretty extraordinary and that's, that's a great thing for people. And how did you communicate it to the employees? Was there a, there must have been multiple waves of communication. There must have been an initial, this is what we're going to do, and then you rolled it out. Can you tell us a little bit about how you implemented It was hard. This? I mean, I would, you know, I've had these I mean, conversations. you could do a whole case study could, on this. Yeah, we could spend we three could spend, hours on this, I'm could. sure. And I have. Yeah. Um, because, you know, people call now, uh, and they say, like, okay, walk me through this. Like, how would you Oh, you're hearing that? a lot of interest from the HR community. Yeah, even before we put the HBR article out. Now um, the phone's really going to ring. Yeah. And actually, you can go to, there's a Workforce Institute site where we put up some materials that are just kind of open source. So if people want to, you know, pull down some of those materials and, you know, learn about how we, you know, to your question, how we kind of train managers, which we did mm. beforehand. We communicated to employees in advance of it being put in place so they'd have a chance to, you know, react. There really wasn't a whole lot of reaction needed, but... You know, it's a big change in the paradigm for people and how they've done vacation or taken vacation. Historically, so we wanted to make sure we kind of got ahead of that. And then we did, you know, um, you know, a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations after it was out to kind of walk people through this. The first year, as it says in the article, you know, vacation increased by roughly 20% for people. We still track it because... And that was the first year, was just last year, right? 16, yeah. 16 was the first year of yep. implementation. And then I think over 17, you know, 17 is also keeping on the same trend. I think one of the issues, and not that this is a big problem, but, you know, people, because they feel so free now, feel... I mean, they'll have a conversation with their manager and make sure the team's taken care of and make sure that they're, you know, they have, all their stuff is kind of lined up and they can uh, do their jobs. But 
um, high performers do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think they feel less compelled to actually track it. So we, we might have a tracking issue. I ironically give right. I know that. that's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, if we're probably to... we're probably like ninety percent compliant now, and you know it's fine with me because what right. my original concern, our original concern, was to make sure people weren't not taking it or that managers weren't supporting this. Now we have another initiative that actually helps us, you know, reinforce this, and then things get kind of layered on top of each other around manager effectiveness, but. We, we were really concerned that this would, as it has had in some other companies that have done this, re- result in less vacation time being taken versus more. And you've seen the results, so you know it was more, but yeah. there was some effort put into that. Well, as, Andy, but, just to interrupt, Andy Porter, who was on the podcast um, about a month ago from the Railroad Institute, although he didn't implement it there, um, he was talking about implementing in the past, and he had junior employees that he found were not feeling comfortable, you know, asking their manager for a time off, uh, whereas more senior and people that high performers were a little bit more apt to do it. Have you seen some people that are just hesitant to do it or not not too much? No, I think it's more of a function of the manager. So we've seen a little bit of hot spots here and there where the manager hasn't been as receptive. Um, yeah. And so we've addressed that. Right. Um, we, you know, I... We had some initial resistance. You know, we expected about 5% of the population, in spite of the fact you might say, why would anybody not want that, that didn't want that. Um, I know. It was in the yeah. article, too. Yeah. And uh, so it was not a fun, like, 30 days because it was, <laughs> it was a very vocal 5%. And, um, and why? Well, some of them were like, well, geez, that's, that's my bank. You know, like, I'm saving that money so when I leave, you can give it to me. I'm like, well, okay, you planning on leaving? No. So, well, I don't know what to tell you then. So, you know, well, I, you know, or, and this is probably um, equal, or maybe even more harder to under or harder to understand. People would say, "Like I had uh, six weeks saved up to go to Europe next year. Now this, you can still and, go. Well, go to Europe. Okay, yeah, it's true. But someone else had just started. Also, can go to Europe. I said, "Look, you know, this is a team sport we're playing here." So this is generally my response. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you have somebody on your team that's so good that they can take six weeks off and still be productive, you got to be really happy about that because you know one of us not not. Individuals don't win here. The team wins, and this is you know meant to support the team. But you know, I would and I would say that uh, that resistance skewed a little bit to people who had been here longer, which probably translates into people that were more used to taking vacation in the old ways. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of those people circled back after the fact and said, "Just kidding, this is awesome." Uh, not only for me, but for my team. Uh, but there's a lot of conversation, you know, yeah. and and you know, it's a great example, and we knew that was going to happen. Yeah. But it, we still believed it was the right thing, you know, and, and in this role, or even as a senior leader anywhere, you can't not do things because you expect there to be some level of, to use your word from earlier, conflict. you got to kind of push through and say, okay, at the, the end game is what we're after. Sometimes you have to run a little bit of interference, go through a little bit of pain to get there, but that's just necessary and, and to do. But I, you yeah. must get so much, oh, so yeah. many employees. Yeah. The other side was also really yeah, positive. It's got to be incredible. <laughs> In fact, the, my funny, the funniest story that. is, you know, there was a, the guy, the six-week vacation guy, in the second half of his conversation said, but just so you know, my son is now working here. He just started, and this is awesome. He's got this paternity leave and <laughs> maternity leave, and he's got this, he's wanted to take more vacation, and he hasn't. I'm like, so he saw both sides. I'm like, good for him. <laughs> good, good for him. I said, so do you want me to take that away from your son? Um, are you going to tell him that? or you know? So, but it, people were, I think they had a hard time just kind of, getting their head around it's a change thing it right? is a change and also i think inherently you know if, as much as our trust uh, if, you know we have a trust index here that's actually a third party thing it's like 95 percent. wow so, generally speaking they trust what we do but i think you know sometimes when things look too good to be true 
people really take a step back and say, is really, I mean, right. is there like a hidden thing right. here? Is the company saving money and then you had an answer for that where you right. plowed money think, into other benefits? I think it would have been a hard conversation if you said, yeah, we are. We're going to take the money we used to pay you and we're going to go through to the bottom line, you know. And But you went anyway. I mean, you probably could have had an okay conversation there. But when you can say, look, we're, you know, spending the money and more, right. it's kind of hard to and argue. And the, the big thing that the article says is that the results of the company actually improved. And I think your CEO thinks there's some linkage there. It's always hard to show that, right? But when you I have mean, employees that engage, that trusting of management and leadership, um, I mean, they're more motivated. Yeah, I mean, one way to think about it is what's going on with your top talent. And we certainly track, you know, uh, things by categories. So, you know, kind of people that are performing really well, people that are performing on average, and people that are not performing. And what happens to those groups when you do things like this? And you know, people that were performing well and people that were performing extraordinary, I mean, our turnover is at all-time low uh, or at an all-time low, and our um, performance, as uh, the CEO mentioned, is at an all-time high. Congratulations. That's just a great story. <laughs> I think yeah, that's, it's that's awesome. Awesome yeah. HR. What do you think, um, this is a good example of change in HR, what do you think has been the biggest change in the function? You know, first I'd say that innovation, we just talked a little bit about innovation, right? So I think for a long time HR just did what we were expected to do. It was an administrative function. They, you know, you kind of made sure the trains were, you know, kind of all running on time and that you met the Pay and expected criteria. And, yeah, yeah, right? and, and I think there was not a lot of differentiation between companies in that regard. And if you did it poorly, you lose. If you do it okay, it's like a dial tone. No one really notices uh, until you miss. And um, that's the way it was for a long time. I think example I just gave you is an example of you know innovation, but I think companies are both being compelled because of the hyper-competitive uh, nature of the labor market, especially in, in your space, spaces yeah. like technology, yeah. um, but also permission. Um, now, I think that varies a little bit by industry. So if you're in a less hyper-competitive market, um, you might have less permission. I would still say the urge, I mean, the urgency um, to do this stuff is still there. Um, because you still need to differentiate yourself as an employer and not all your jobs are, you know, semi-skilled or whatever. So be aggressive is my advice there. But um, innovation's definitely been a change. Technology, I'd say, is helping. So not only because we do this, but investing in technology allows uh, HR functions to do less of the administrative stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So now there's a couple caveats there. One is you kind of need to make sure you're, you know, investing in the right stuff, obviously. But more importantly, you know, once you relieve that administrative burden, what you're left with is the same folks with that are have historically been focused on administrative tasks. And so re-skilling those folks so they can focus on more strategic things and act in a way that I'll talk about in a second is a challenge, I think, for HR functions. And I think it's, go back to the courage thing for a second, it's easier just to continue to do things the way you've always done them because that's what the team's kind of really skilled up to do. So if you're going to change things, if you're going to invest in technology that takes away some of this administrative burden, it demands that you go after the skills in the organization, in the HR organization specifically, to align it more with the business needs. So it's not an easy thing to do. So the technology is great, but there's some challenges that come along with that. Mm-hmm. And the last one I think is um, just the way people approach HR. So I think a lot of HR people are, are successful because they're relationship-based. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to, especially the best example is HR business partners, which we have here that are embedded in the business. So they'll perform, you know, they'll, they'll perform well from a um, leader of the business perspective, but sometimes uh, that means they do exactly what the business leader tells them to do, and they do all the stuff that the managers in the business don't want to do, like have the hard conversations and 
you know, do analysis they probably could be doing themselves. And that's not how we approach HR here. And I would argue maybe not the way you should approach HR overall. Um, we've done some things here that, you know, probably wouldn't in the short term have won us any popularity contests, but they're the right things to do for the business that they learn back. Uh, well, that actually, that leads me to my next question because I first, um, I think I've seen you before at Nero events because I know you're very close to the organization, but last year you won the John D. Erland Award and you're rolling your eyes. You don't like this fanfare. In fact, you didn't, I remember you feeling a little embarrassed as you were giving that speech, but um, one of the things that struck me is how sincerely you showed appreciation for your HR team. Maybe you could talk about your team, how you built your team, and uh, what things you're proud of that they're accomplishing here now. Yeah, not a big fan. I mean, at first, it's not about me. So, and this is probably what I said. Um, I've won two awards in the last two years, and I don't think either one of them I won the CHR of the Year Award at a national organization last year. And uh, I said the same thing there. Because what was the organization? The national HRO one? today. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations on that one, too, then. Yeah, neither one of them I deserve credit for, really. So, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm, uh, we're about to have a, later today, have a 90-minute meeting on, you know, the objectives for the group for next year and preparation for this HR summit we're putting together in December. So that'll be the meeting today, and uh, they'll come forward with, you know, what they think we need to do. And I'm, I'm in there a lot, you know, I kind of deal with them directly on a regular basis, but it's an incredibly talented team. Um, and they're motivated and they're passionate and uh, all the things you'd probably expect them to be to be able to pull off what we pull off here, and they are uh, in combination with the CEO who enables a lot of this and is supportive of a lot of this. And actually, in the in the case of Courage to Lead, is the model actually for a lot of the things we do here. You know, they deserve ninety five percent of this credit, right? But I think you know all those things are critically important. But if you ask me what was different about this team than most, it's the character of the individuals on the team. So. Recently, we did a reorganization on the team, and that required people to do slightly different jobs or take on more responsibility. And they all did that because they knew it was the right thing for the business. And so um, some difficult uh, decisions and discussions there. But at the end of the day, what ended up happening is not only did these people step up, and I have zero doubt that we're going to be successful, but the people who weren't affected all raised their hand and said, if there's any way I can possibly help to get this done, um, just all you have to do is ask. Their role wasn't being directly impacted, but they every one of them. Every every one of the hundred people that work in HR here are made up of the same type of character. They take extraordinary care of the business and even better care of each other. Well, how, I was going to ask you that. How did you go about building this <laughs> HR team? <laughs> how long is the podcast? <laughs> Uh, one person at a time, really. <laughs> one person at a time, and I think. Um, well, you know, I, I'll ask another question. Okay. What's important to you about? When you're bringing somebody in to the, your HR team, what's important to you about them that yeah, helps so, you make that decision? Um, character is the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and one way to figure, find that out is to say, look, you know, I can ask a question like we just talked about. Give them a scenario where you weren't directly impacted by a organizational change. How did you deal with that? You know, um, and most people will say, you know, I just want to make sure I did my job because, you know, I know it was you know, helpful for the organization and they didn't need the distraction. Occasionally get people that say, I kind of raised my hand and I did more. And those are the people you probably want. Not a knockout question, but it's an interesting insight for mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Um, my group, um, passion for the both the business and for the function. You know, we don't, we could do a lot less and be successful, I think. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we do a lot more, I mean, these guys drive me as much as I drive them. Maybe too much, but that's not a bad thing. You know, uh, it's impossible. I could decide tomorrow I'm never going to introduce another initiative again. And these guys would just continue to come forward like, and I'd have to still obviously 
parse all that stuff out, but that's how much passion they have for what we do. I'm not dragging them along at this point. Right. They're pushing along, and that passion is important. And then I'd say, you know, obviously two things that really matter are competency and, and intelligence, you know. You know, i got to go, go to the nearer question of the podcast right now. As the uh, Erland Award went last year, so I'm happy to ask you, what things would you recommend to young professionals they're in HR. They want to move up in the function. Yeah, good question. So, oh, wow. You know, at first I think you need to really check yourself and make sure you're passionate about what you're doing because you're not really ultimately going to be successful, not only in HR, but anywhere else if you're not really successful. If you're only trying to move up because you want a bigger paycheck or a bigger title, um, you probably need to find something that you're going to be more excited about. I mean, I've had these conversations with my own kids. I think it's true for any, any professional in any function. So that's one. Two, I'd say um, find a mentor. Uh, and I know this is kind of a, a routine thing to say, but it's hard to figure out kind of how to navigate successfully through an organization. And it's really hard to get an objective view of yourself against not only your current role, but against future roles without somebody who's going to take an interest in the time to do that. So it needs to be somebody that's senior enough that can kind of give you that perspective and um, someone that's kind of, you know, candid enough to give it and maybe intelligent enough and caring enough to give in a way that's kind of actionable for the person. But, you know, it makes a big difference. And if you find the right mentor, they're going to get out as much out of it as you are because it's, I've done it a lot in my career and it's, it's rewarding um, to be able to move people up in the organization. So uh, that's another one. The other thing I'd say is, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, make sure you're in the right organization. You know, if you really are passionate about this, if you really are competent, if you really want to move forward, you need to assess a little bit, you know, um, where you are with your career and then where you want to go. And can the organization you're with kind of get you there? And, you know, it's not the organization's fault if it's a small organization or it's in a it's got leadership that just isn't supportive of the kind of things we've been discussing or whatever. You're, you're probably going to be a little frustrated over time. And, you know, the next role isn't always the answer. You know, just because you're in a more senior role doesn't mean sometimes you're more frustrated as opposed to less. You know, I mean, more seniority doesn't end frustration. No. I mean, I don't think that's probably true in almost everybody's experience. <laughs> um, in fact, in a lot of cases, it magnifies it, right? So you need to make sure that's all lined up for you as well. And then I'd say continue to learn. You know, I think I spent, I mentioned before the podcast started that I spent the week at uh, MIT. And um, it's, uh, you know, immersing yourself in an environment that gives you that perspective which is different than the perspective you're going to get in the workplace um, is important. So when I say learn, I certainly mean academic. I mean, you know, if you really appreciate, you know, education and learning, what you really come away with is there's a heck of a lot more you don't know than what you do know. And uh, anybody who tells you different than that, that probably didn't really grasp what they were supposed to grasp out of their, out of their education. But you, you, I mean, your message is say yes to educational opportunities. Seek them out. Yeah, and, and, and uh, whether it's through a mentor, yeah, yeah. Or through formal or informal learning, that seems like that's and, your. And message. other organizations too, you know. I mean, I think there's in you know, mirror conferences, and yeah. you know, just kind of continue to learn, and you know, that'll generate new ideas and help you better understand where you might go in the profession and all those things. And I think um, it's a undervalued piece of how people can progress. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be wouldn't be in this job as much as you know it was a crazy year. You know, the opportunity that I took to work in a strategy role for a year, which gave me the international experience combined with the postdoctorate work I did, you know, made me probably more attractive as a CHRO. When I was hired here, I never was a CHRO before. So my competition, I wasn't thinking about this at the time, but certainly it was probably true, were sitting CHROs. 
So why would you hire the new kid as opposed to the tried and true kid? Mm. Um, and part of this, I think, is you know spending time in some of these environments and learning that way, and spending time in academia and learning that way. And certainly, some of it was just you know kind of a connection and all those things, but they help. Right. Um, in sometimes unexpected ways. All those different lenses you have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a question I ask on the podcast every time as well, in addition to the neighbor question. I get. I used to think I'd get the same answers for this question, but I get a very different answer from everybody. If you could write a letter of advice to your 30-year-old self, career advice, business advice, what would you write to yourself? Yeah, that's a good uh, question. The first one would probably be exercise more. Like, you know, <laughs> like you're going to get old. It doesn't get any easier, you know. That's like, like it's like investing, right? you got to put that in the bank. That's the, right. You know, because you're still stuff. 30, yeah. you're still on the verge of thinking you're indestructible, right? <laughs> right so, right. you know, you learn later that isn't true. So, um, but professionally, I think you know, I was in a pretty good place at 30. Um, I think I'd remind myself to take full advantage of the opportunities that I had. I think, it, you know, when you're kind of moving up at that age, you kind of feel like whatever you have, you're entitled to. And and maybe you just feel like, you know, everything better is in front of you. And it's almost expected at that point versus sitting back and saying, wow, this was this quite an opportunity. And I also, I think, I'd, I think I'm a better leader now um, than I was at 30. And I think when you're 30 and you start to get teams that report to you, I think you, again, feel like maybe you deserve that because you're doing well. And therefore, you're being put in that position and you don't really reflect on what that means for the people that work for you. And so I think I'd tell myself, good job, you know, uh, appreciate where you are, but be a better leader, lead every day, help the folks that work for you move forward in their careers and develop. And I don't know that at 30, most people think about those things. What other things do you do to foster management effectiveness here at Kronos? Yeah, so it's been something we've really doubled down. We have a very simple belief here, which is... Every uh, Cronite, every employee deserves a Cronite. Cronite, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, proud Cronites. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, no question. That's a that's a that's a term that people use here with a with a combination of, you know, pride and um, we we believe that everyone deserves a great manager. Simple as that. Now that's kind of interesting, and I think you know motherhood and apple pie ish. But we also know because we take a very evidence based approach to HR here. Most of the time when I say I know, it's because we have evidence, there's data that's pointing us in a direction that we've kind of pursued over time. It's not because we're guessing. We don't react to trends. We stay on top of trends, but then we kind of analyze what's going on in the business and make decisions that way. So in the case of manager effectiveness, um, that's exactly what we did. So we started with the belief, okay, we believe there's something here. We believe there's something going on where good managers are, are, are creating better code or um, having higher retention or um, in the cases of services, you know, servicing customers better or all the things we do as a business here. And so we said, okay, well, how do we capture that? How do you figure out what that kind of secret what's code the, yeah, is? What's the magic formula right. for those managers in if this there, environment? If there is one. Maybe right. there wasn't going to be one. So we started doing a little research on this. And there's a couple of companies that have done some work here. So the, the question we started with was how, how are great leaders managing every day, more specifically, how are great leaders managing every day at uh, at Chrono? So there's a there was a New York Times article um, probably around four years ago now. The title of the article was Project Oxygen. Uh, there's also a Harvard Business Review case on Project Oxygen that's 23 pages long. The, the um, Project Oxygen New York Times article is uh, three pages long, so kind of the abbreviated version that um, gives you the gist. And if you want to dig in, the HBR version is very uh, very good as well. But um, that was that. That was a product of work that Google had done 
Um, so there's a individual at Google, her name is Michelle Donovan, who headed up this project. Um, and there's an individual at Facebook that did some similar work. Her name is Brent Harrington. Um, and I, we've spent time with both, um, a lot of time. Actually, with both with people? Both. Yeah. You brought them here? Okay. Yeah, we went there. Oh, you went there? That's yeah. great. Every year, we actually, we do a benchmarking trip. We find companies that we think are doing pretty exciting stuff. And we go on the road uh, and we you know, pick the target company. And then we generally meet with two or three other companies in the area at the same time just to kind of learn from them. Um, and in this case, uh, we wanted to learn about this. Like, what are you doing? And we didn't want the answers to the test. We wanted the equation. We wanted to figure out, because we know we knew Google in particular, but also uh, Facebook were very analytical. So we know they didn't just take a swag at this and say, well, these are probably the right behaviors. Right. So, like gut, so we're just going right? to hold people accountable for stuff we're not really sure is going to drive the business. We were pretty sure that they were going to hold people accountable for stuff that was going to drive the business. So that helped us quite a bit as, as far as figuring out how to go after it. But after that, we had to analyze just a ton of data on our side. So think about five years of engagement surveys where we looked at you know top, top or highly engaged employees versus employees that were less engaged and try to figure out the differences there. Managers that were performing well versus managers not performing well. Teams are performing well, not performing well. We looked at um, stakeholder feedback that also comes through our process. We looked at um, talent calibration to figure out how people were being rated. We took all that data. We said, what is that really telling us? Uh, and then we kind of distilled that down into like 20 or so learnings. And then we sat down with a huge number of focus groups and said, okay, well, here's what we think the characteristics are. How does this show up every day? So if someone, for example, if we think communication's big, does that mean they write you an email every night before they go to bed? Does that mean they, you know, uh, what are they doing? This, you know, are they holding regular staff meetings? What are they communicating? So there's a granular level of understanding we tried to get to that we were um, happy to do. And so at the end of that, what we're able to do is determine not only the, the 10 to 15 characteristics that were important for managers, but also the questions we needed to ask on a biannual basis, which is what we do now, to be able to determine if their teams are seeing that behavior out of managers. Um, and we started that process in 16. We do it, uh, we, we have employees rate their managers every six months. Um, and, you know, interesting things happened out of that. Really, I would say cool stuff if you're mm. if you're uh, um, if you're into the kind of progressive HR. Yeah, can you give us thing. give us an example of something that came out? So I, I wish I could share this like the graph that kind of it, which I don't even have in front of me here, but it, the graph that came out of this thing. But you know, for the last few years, we've been stuck on eighty four percent highly engaged employees. Now that's the top five percent of all bad. companies. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. It's come up a lot since two thousand and ten. Um, so we we're pretty happy with that, but still for four surveys, it was at 84. So we did this manager effectiveness thing where we started to identify these behaviors and have employees rate them in the first survey, obviously no change in engagement because all we're doing is creating a baseline, like mm. what's going on. But then every single manager, uh, got a report that said, here's where you rate against your peers. Here's what, in all these different areas, which quartile you're in, here's the stuff you need to work on. You know, by the way, it's, it's as part of this, the expectation is share it with your team. Tell them what your rating was and what you're doing to improve. So Every these team. are some experiences that managers have never no. had. No. And a lot of them just didn't. I mean, we didn't, by the way, in the first round of this, share the results with the manager's manager. This was developmental. We're not trying to. It's not a gotcha thing. It's, look, we've, we've kind of uncovered some code here um, that we know is going to make uh, your team more successful. Here's where you fall against that kind of, you know, kind of finding. And so here's what we need to work on. 
And so managers took it very seriously. Now, in the case of the, the worst performing managers, we came up with, we took individual responsibility for coaching those folks and were pretty intensive there. But every single manager had access to um, development across those different areas. So we weren't just saying, hey, you need to work on this, but we're not going to tell some you resources. how. Here's some resources. Here's some more. <laughs> right. Right. Here's some resources. Right. And so the second survey happened at the beginning of 17. And lo and behold, the results for MEI improved um, pretty dramatically up five points. Um, but more importantly, uh, engagement went up three. Nothing we take for granted, but we're happy with that, especially given the kind of relative stagnation. And retention, which is a predictive in number for us, which I can talk about a little bit, but also went up significantly. Um, so um, just by focusing on these different areas, we, two things really happened. One is folks obviously more engaged. Second, the retention thing, which I mentioned, reason it's predictive is because our vendor actually goes back and looks at all the folks that said they were planning on leaving or thinking about leaving. Those folks leave at a rate of about eight times compared to the people who said they're going to stay. That number dropped significantly. And our retention yeah, our retention has or gone up or attrition's gone down, sure. depending on how you want to flip that wow. metric significantly over that time as well. Because people are, everybody deserves a great manager, and now we have a way to deliver that. That's great. Pretty, pretty, fun, pretty right. fun stuff. And two things that two major things we talked about today that happened in 2016, right? So yeah. these are two big initiatives in your HR group. Yeah. Um, so now it's kind of like, and now that explains why you had to do the reorganization <laughs> and realign jobs. You have so much different yeah. work going on here now than you did. Yeah. Also creates a really ago. high bar for us. So you're like, okay, so what do you get? What do you yeah. got for me now? What do you, you, know? <laughs> you got left? Those are two things no one else has done before. What else <laughs> going on in 2018? Yeah. Tell us about that. Right. But we don't, we don't innovate. For, I mean, we do like to innovate, no question, but we only innovate against things that actually, you know, you know, are identified needs in the business and then it gets kind of fun. So we'll do some of that in 18 for sure. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. And no, this has been great. And I appreciate the opportunity to share some of the stuff we're doing here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.